Hi everyone, thanks for listening in to the rounds table as always. This week we're going to be playing one of our favorite previous episodes, and we'll be back to you with new content next week. Thanks very much. Hello everyone and welcome to the rounds table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by a distinguished guest. We have with us today Samir Grover, who is a staff gastroenterologist and an aficionado of all things gastroenterology and various things beyond gastroenterology. Really excited to have Samir with us today. Hi, Samir. Thanks very much, Amol. My pleasure to be here. So it's really great to have you here with us, Samir. Before we get started, uh, I want to ask you up front, do you have any financial interest to disclose? No, I have no financial disclosures. Excellent. So with that taken care of, let's go ahead and get started. So Samir and I are going to talk about three topics today. We're going to be talking about eosinophilic esophagitis. Samir is passionate about this diagnosis and its importance, and so he's going to talk to us about it. Then we're going to talk about infection control in endoscopy. And then we'll talk about the rise of outpatient endoscopy in Ontario. And then, of course, as always, we will wrap up our conversation with a good stuff segment, bringing you some short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So, Samir, why don't we kick off and talk a little bit about eosinophilic esophagitis. So, first off, what is eosinophilic esophagitis? It's, uh, it's neat that you've started off with that question, because uh, if you would have asked it 20 years ago, I think no one would have had an answer. It's very much a uh, diagnosis of this generation. So eosinophilic esophagitis is a primary inflammatory disorder of the esophagus thought to have allergic roots. Um, the diagnostic criteria are symptoms of esophageal dysfunction, so that can be dysphagia, discomfort as a symptom, primarily heartburn. Um, or even more profound symptoms such as food bolus obstruction where food actually obstructs inside the esophagus. That's criterion one. Criterion two is a histopathological criterion of greater than 15 eosinophils per high power field on endoscopic biopsies. And the third criterion is a treatment criterion where there's failure in response either or both of symptomatically or histologically with the trial of proton pump inhibitors. The reason being gastroesophageal reflux disease is a far more common entity and it's an entity that's associated with eosinophilia and the esophagus as well. So I can see why it is an evolving condition because it seems like the symptoms are fairly nonspecific in the sense that it's any kind of esophageal uh, motility or uh, function problem. And also because the diagnosis has to be made sort of histopathologically and as a diagnosis of exclusion. I think the, uh, the neat thing about it historically is the fact that if you take a look back at prior presentations of rather significant symptoms, um, and indeed even amongst the same patient population, the diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis simply wasn't known and was missed in patients who presented with rather significant symptoms such as food bolus obstruction. Indeed, it was attributed exactly like you said to a primary motility disorder or a mechanical disorder that may or may not have had any bearing, such as a Schatzky ring, with respect to their symptoms. Interesting. And so, as you say, the diagnostic criteria and diagnosis is evolving. How common is the condition and are we still significantly underdiagnosing? 
I think um, if there's there's two major sources of information as to how common the condition is. Um, there's the Olmsted County database that was published in 2009, and that showed an estimated prevalence at that time of approximately 40 to 50 per 100,000. And there was a more recent report published in uh, 2014 in April, um, suggesting 56 per 100,000 as the prevalence of the condition. So still not a common condition, but certainly something that's being increasingly recognized. And so when do we need to think about the entity? You spoke a little bit about the diagnostic criteria, but, you know, for a general internist like myself or primary care physician or, or surgeon perhaps who is seeing a patient uh, complaining of upper GI symptoms, when do I need to think maybe this is eosinophilic? I think there's, um, there's two major symptom complexes to think of. The first is food bolus obstruction. So this is a, a clinical entity wherein patients will present with acute obstruction of the esophagus, hypersalivation, usually discomfort, and usually it brings them to the emergency department in the Western world simply because uh, it's, it's that profound of a symptomatology. Most patients with uh, food bolus obstruction who present to the hospital will require an urgent endoscopy, not just for diagnosis, but also for treatment in order to evacuate the bolus or to push it inside the, uh, the stomach. And if you take a look at uh, patients who present with food bolus um, to hospital, it's in this particular subset of individuals where an eosinophilic esophagitis is mounting as the primary disease entity as, in terms of a cause of these symptoms over Schatzky rings, which is a, a benign ring of the esophagus, or esophageal cancers, or other causes that were quite common. Um, so in that particular population, us as gastroenterologists at the time of the endoscopy can oftentimes miss the diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis because the endoscopic appearance can sometimes be subtle and as a consequence patients may be given other diagnostic entities. Um, it's at that time that uh, the reflective uh, physician must think of eosinophilic esophagitis as you know, not just um, epidemiologically as the most common uh, cause but also uh, functionally as the most common cause. Um, the second subset of individuals would be patients who have esophageal symptoms primarily attributable to GERD that are not resolving with proton pump inhibitors. And in that subset of individuals, um, there are very clear criteria that, uh, that indicate that eosinophilic esophagitis may be the entity, and that specifically is failure of response to a proton pump inhibitor and the presence of residual eosinophilia on biopsies of the esophagus. Okay, and so it sounds to me, you know, effectively one of two entities GERD resistant to PPI or food bolus obstruction, that's when we should think about eosinophilic esophagitis. What should we do next? So I think um, um, if one takes a look at uh, patients with food bolus obstruction, at the time of endoscopy, there are very clear endoscopic findings that are almost pathognomonic for eosinophilic esophagitis. It's almost a slam dunk type diagnosis. It creates rather pretty endoscopic pictures. Multiple rings in the esophagus. Um, the term is uh, uh, felinization of the esophagus because apparently the cat esophagus normally has multiple esophageal rings. One sees tram track-like appearances in the esophagus where you have straight lines where there shouldn't be straight lines across the esophagus. And then there's more, uh, some more significant features that identify why the obstruction is taking place, such as uh, areas of narrowing, areas of stricturing, and things that may be reflective of pain where the, uh, the mucosal layer of the esophagus is completely uh, obliterated or wiped down. They call that the crepe paper esophagus type of picture. If one sees that um, and one is aware of the, uh, the endoscopic features of eosinophilic esophagitis, the diagnosis becomes very clear. 
However, they can oftentimes be missed at the time of food bolus obstruction because endoscopies are performed in a suboptimal setting, they're done in the emergency room, for example, wherein the equipment may not be as good, or by virtue of the fact that the obstruction itself is obscuring these very clear uh, pathognomonic endoscopic findings. So as a consequence, the thing to remember is that if the cause of a food bolus obstruction, particularly in a young individual um, with other epidemiological features suggestive of eosinophilic esophagitis is not found, there should be a repeat endoscopy with targeted biopsies in order to try to make that diagnosis. Okay, and the other uh, and uh, epidemiologic features are a history of allergy? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, young patients, uh, typically third and fourth decades of life is the time of presentation. Although there is a pediatric eosinophilic esophagitis entity that's, uh, that's also well described probably a spectrum of the same disease. And then a personal or family history of allergy, either environmental or severe uh, drug or food allergy, atopy, or a history of asthma personally or in the family. Makes a lot of sense. And so it sounds like this is on that spectrum of eosinophilic mediated, maybe IgE related conditions? Very much so. And then uh, uh, novel approaches with respect to, to treatment, of course, are targeting that particular pathway. So what are the approaches to treatment? They're twofold. First of all, in the acute setting, one has to manage the, uh, the acute presentation if it's a food bolus obstruction. Secondly, in terms of chronic management, once the diagnosis has been made and once PPI-associated um, resolution of eosinophilia has been excluded, and that subset is thought primarily to be GERD, one can uh, proceed towards targeted management of eosinophilic esophagitis. Um, and I'll use the word traditionally, even though traditionally means the past 15 years for this condition. <laughs> um, the treatment of choice has been topical steroids. And you'll, you'll question the word topical. It's actually quite neat. Um, there's a large study published out of Australia wherein they used topical fluticasone. So this is the same uh, medication that's used for treatment of asthma in puffer form that was administered topically to the esophagus by getting patients to obtain fluticasone puffers. And as opposed to inhaling the, uh, the MDI puffers, they swallowed the medication to coat the esophagus and then rinsed out the mouth in order to remove the, uh, uh, the residual medication such, as such that thrush would not be a, uh, a complication. Which is coincidentally probably about how at least 15 to 20 percent of asthma patients take their puffers anyways accidentally and swallow half the medication. I see. <laughs> Fluticasone um, very much became the mainstay of treatment, and then they uh, attempted to try to recreate um, the same sort of effect with other topical uh, steroid preparations. So bedesonide is used in, in asthma puffers as well, and bedesonide can be administered uh, using the same nebules that are used uh, for, uh, for asthma by placing it into a somewhat viscous solution. Here at our hospital, we use uh, Splenda sucralose. Uh, in order to create a viscous type material that will adhere to the upper part of the esophagus and allow the medication to be topically applied to that area. Interesting. And it, does it does it usually work quite quickly? Is it an effective therapy? It's a highly effective therapy. Um, the only significant complication that a majority of patients get is exactly what we talked about already, the risk of uh, moropharyngeal and esophageal candidiasis, which is, which is indeed quite high. The one is administering a fairly high dose of the medication in a very sensitive area for, uh, for, uh, for thrush. Right. Okay. And so how do people respond? They respond, well, what's the long-term prognosis? Is this associated with more malignancy? Is there anything we need to think about? These are fantastic questions that we've yet to come up with the answers for. I think we don't have the long-term data for eosinophilic esophagitis to be able to definitively indicate that. Now, we do know from other allergic disorders the risk of malignancy is actually quite low. 
Um, so I would, I would think that malignancy would not be a primary concern in eosinophilic esophagitis, but to be honest, these questions have yet to be answered. Indeed, the prognosis of patients, or even how to titrate therapy to maximize their prognosis, for example, should steroids be on demand in eosinophilic esophagitis, should it be continuous and suppressive, these are questions that have yet to be answered. So, uh, Samir, you said that steroids was the traditional approach uh, to treatment. What is the newfangled approach to therapy? It's amazing how uh, dietary therapy is now considered to be a modern therapy for eosinophilic <laughs> esophagitis. So we know from the pediatric literature that um, uh, dietary therapy has a rather significant impact on the clinical symptomatology of patients with eosinophilic esophagitis. And this is data from uh, the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, the thought is that the primary allergic stimulus in eosinophilic esophagitis, which I mentioned is a disease confined to the esophagus, is foodstuff. Um, so there have been various strategies that have been put into place to treat for treatment of patients with eosinophilic esophagitis through diet. Um, one thing that I did mention is that eosinophilic esophagitis can be an entity wherein patients get extremely unwell simply by virtue of the fact that if the diagnosis isn't made or if there is a particularly recalcitrant form of the disease, they can form um, strictures um, and they can have rather significant malnutrition that results from the condition. Um, so oftentimes, uh, the patients at the time of presentation in this particular recalcitrant subset can be quite unwell, and nutritional therapy becomes important not just for therapy of the condition, but also for, uh, for, for, for general nutritional concerns. So the dietary therapies that have been proposed are twofold. Um, first is elimination diets. So um, elimination diets target particular foodstuffs that are thought to be the primary allergic targets in eosinophilic esophagitis. Um, there's six of them that have been identified. Uh, wheat, eggs, uh, shellfish, uh, nuts, uh, milk, and soy. And this has uh, been termed the six-food elimination diet, and that's one that's been tested with considerable rigor both in the pediatric population as well as in the adult population. So that's the elimination approach. The second approach is the, um, the test and eliminate approach. So either doing uh, prick testing has been evaluated the most or patch testing, trying to identify what a particular individual is allergic to and using that in order to guide therapy for uh, eosinophilic esophagitis. And it's actually the elimination approach that's shown the most success and the one that's been most robustly evaluated. In both pediatric population and the adult population, six-food elimination diet has been shown to not only result in improvement of symptoms, but also uh, elimination of esophageal eosinophilia. That is, um, when an endoscopy is done and biopsies are taken, one sees, um, uh, on most of the studies, close to zero eosinophils per high power field. And then with reintroduction of um, those six eliminated foods, one sees uh, the symptoms recur and the recurrence of eosinophilia within the esophagus. So very clearly, this is an approach that is successful. The problem is that um, it's a fairly uh, challenging diet in order to be able to follow. And I think that's, um, perhaps I am a little tongue-in-cheek myself when I say that the reason why the testing was done primarily in kids is that in the pediatric population is much easier to make them uh, conform to a diet, and the adult population becomes more challenging. But very clearly, I think this is a benign approach that should be used perhaps as first line before, in, before steroids, although that, that, uh, that evaluation is yet to be determined. Yeah, and I guess it would be a difficult thing necessarily to adhere to. So I, I don't know. I think if I had to choose between a, a severe elimination diet or oral steroids and a risk of thrush, I might choose the thrush, but I'm not sure. Um, that's great. Thank you so much. So maybe to summarize the major points about eosinophilic esophagitis, uh, it sounds like it's an important entity that we should recognize because it's very treatable 
and can have important clinical implications when diagnosed. Um, it affects predominantly, you said, younger patients in their 30s and 40s, uh, and the two major clinical entities we should think about is food bolus or resistant reflux that's not responding to PPI therapy. That's correct. Um, perhaps even younger than that, so 20s and 30s would be what we see commonly in the adult population, but also children. Great. And then people who have a history of allergy or atopy are the ones that you would be more likely to think about. Management is either dietary or with topical corticosteroids. That's correct. Perfect. So now let's move on and talk about infection control practices in endoscopy. And this really came across my radar from a, a neat paper in JAMA where they identified an outbreak of CRE, so carbapenemase-resistant enterobacteriaceae, or one of the more multidrug-resistant and dangerous pathogens. So there was a CRE outbreak in an Illinois hospital, and they found that the source of the outbreak was exposure to duodenoscopes. So the initial case was identified through a clinical culture in this hospital, and this is a strain of CRE that really hasn't been seen very commonly in the United States. And so upon isolating this organism, the CDC sprung into action, the Centers for Disease Control, and did a number of epidemiological investigations, contact tracing within the hospital to try and identify whether an outbreak had occurred and what the source of that outbreak was. They conducted a field investigation that revealed nine cases of CRE initially uh, in the hospital, and the epidemiological tracing revealed no temporal overlap between the patient rooms or the wards that these patients had been in. So what they did find was the common element is that six out of the eight patients had an ERCP procedure, and five out of six of those patients were with the same scope. We call it scope A. So they conducted a case control study with those nine patients to see what are the risk factors associated with developing CRE and it was really having this procedure done, the ERCP, and also patients who had antibiotic use in the previous three months. So they went on to look at the endoscopes that were used, and they studied the infection control practices of the hospital, and they found that there were no breaches identified in the processing of the scopes. So maybe we can pause here for a second and talk a little bit about what is a duodenoscope and how is that different from a gastroscope or a colonoscope? Um, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about why maybe that was the source of this infection and how are you, they usually cleaned? Oh, Mo, what a scary concept you've discussed. A diagnostic test or a therapeutic test is supposed to make people better and indeed it becomes a source and a nidus for infection in the Western world. Um, so uh, very much in brief with respect to types of endoscopes. Um, so the duodenoscope is a particular type of side viewing um, endoscope inserted by the mouth. Um, and when I mention it's side viewing, the, the, the view of the optics is on the side wall of the luminal gastrointestinal tract. So it's used primarily for ERCP because the ampulla in order to, which we need to access for ERCP is located on the side of the duodenum and is not well seen with forward viewing instruments. Um, but the duodenoscope also contains a certain uh, number of other elements that uh, are useful specifically for ERCP. It 
it has a, a third dial. Um, so normal gastroscopes um, have an up, down, and left, right uh, uh, switches that are attached to wires that allow you to change the orientation of the endoscope. Whereas at the time of ERCP, we actually need to put in instruments into the bile duct. And in order to adjust the location of those, one uses a mechanical device known as the elevator. And this is something that sticks out ever so much from the end of the endoscope. It's a little uh, dial that you can press that changes the orientation of the, or the, the angle of an instrument that's inserted into the endoscope, and it allows cannulation of the common bile duct to become easier and introduction of, uh, of any instrument to become easier. And I think this is the most important difference with respect to infection control related to duodenoscopes compared to gastroscopes, because it becomes an irregular end surface that contains um, potentially infectious material within it. So there are crevices in the instrument itself, which makes it more difficult to sterilize. Exactly. How are they usually sterilized in our hospital, do you know? So there's two major elements. The first element is, well, actually, there's more than two major elements. Uh, the first uh, step is pre-cleaning. So as soon as the scope is, is used, um, what's done at um, every large um, endoscopic center is pre-cleaning with typically water or anything else to remove all of the organic debris from the end of the endoscope and from the surface of the endoscope. Following that, reprocessing begins with a mechanical cleaning step. What that involves is taking a brush and going into the actual bore of the endoscope to remove all the debris, and then mechanically removing any debris that wasn't removed during pre-cleaning. And following that is a chemical process. And there's various chemical solutions that have been used. Historically, it's been um, glutaraldehyde, and I'm sure you've heard of the case of glutaraldehyde-associated colitis, wherein glutaraldehyde isn't used as the primary agent in most jurisdictions anymore. It's usually um, fifaldehyde that's used as the primary cleaning uh, compound now. Following that is a drying process, so the, the, the endoscopes are then washed in water, there's a, there's a drying process that takes place in an automated fashion, and the storage of the endoscopes is typically inside a unit that is reserved for endoscopes, wherein there is um, as little contact from individuals to the endoscopes as possible. So that sounds pretty involved. I guess it means you can only use one endoscope per day? Um, so, uh, no. What we do um, at most uh, high-volume endoscopic centers is track the endoscope specifically uh, to particular individuals and particular procedures so that um, there's a quality assurance process that's involved. process of cleaning, um, it varies from cleaning facility to cleaning facility, but it typically takes place over the course of less than an hour and a half. So a particular endoscope can be used multiple times during a day. Okay. And so, interestingly, with this hospital in Illinois, it sounds like their initial process was very similar to what you described with a chemical disinfectant. And in fact, after this outbreak, they changed their process to a gas sterilization. And then they tested all the scopes again for CRE and found that they were all negative. So that there were no further cases after they changed their process to this gas sterilization. Have you heard about that in in the practices we use here? To be honest, I heard about it for the first time from this article. Okay. So it's, it's not something that's commonly done to my knowledge in the major endoscopic centers uh, in, in Ontario. Interesting, and hopefully it's not something we need to turn to, I guess. Hopefully we don't have something similar to this, though it sounds like this case in Illinois suggests that our current practices, in some instances, may not be sufficient for particularly resistant organisms. Okay. We're essentially sticking um, fairly complicated devices into the parts of the uh, the body that contain the most bacteria, uh, period. So it is, um, it's not surprising that we need to have continuous processes to improve our quality with respect to infection control and endoscopy.
Absolutely. And I guess just to wrap up the story about this case, the hospital then traced all of the patients. As you said, we keep a, a tracking of who gets exposed to which scope. And so they went and they, they reached out to 220-odd patients who were exposed to the different uh, scopes that were implicated here. 102 returned for screening, and of those, they identified an additional 27 cases of colonization with CRE from the screening And clubs. that's the particularly scary part about all of this is the fact that um, um, when you have uh, conditions that may not be able to um, provide a particular uh, disease presentation but may, may do so in the future, um, that becomes a very scary part of, uh, of, of endoscopy as a vector for transmission of uh, bacterial disease. Yeah, absolutely. And so is this something that gastroenterologists speak about a lot. This is one of the first times I'm really hearing about endoscopy as a vector of I think, transmission. Um, in, the, uh, in the 1990s with uh, C. difficile, um, that was really the time where the discussion, sort of, at least uh, a period of time that I've been uh, involved in medicine, where the discussion really did come up first uh, for the first time. Um, so Clostridium difficile, as you know, um, the spores can be notoriously difficult in order to, to clear and can be present on any instrument that's inserted into the gastrointestinal tract. Um, so the thought is that our current processes at that time were insufficient in order to remove spores of Clostridium difficile from, uh, from endoscopes, um, and consequently they may be a vector for transmission. So that was really the first time that it, uh, it sort of uh, became discussed, but this is an ongoing process. There will always be a, a new um, uh, organism or a new subset of an organism that will, uh, that will result in uh, difficulty with respect to removal from objects. Right, and I guess then may re result in a change in cleaning technologies, like with this gas sterilization. Absolutely. And so maybe to bring this section of our conversation to a close, and then we'll move on to talking about outpatient endoscopy. Endoscopic procedures, as you so aptly put, is sticking a complicated device into an area where there are literally millions of microbes, literally trillions of microbes. Yeah. And it's not surprising that that could be a vector for transmission. And it's interesting to think about how our sterilization technologies have evolved sort of in co-evolution with our pathogens and how that may continue to happen. Absolutely. Okay, so why don't we move on to talk a little bit about outpatient endoscopy clinics. And we've sort of alluded to this a little bit that in Ontario, there's been a rise of outpatient endoscopy. So what's the story there? What's happened? So it's... Um... It's sort of a neat narrative. Um, as endoscopy um, in the 1990s became a major diagnostic test in gastroenterology, simply because it's a fantastic diagnostic uh, tool, one saw that uh, more and more endoscopies were being done. One particular indication for endoscopy is screening colonoscopy, where we were able to identify precancerous lesions that, if removed, would lead to a decrease population-wide in the incidence of uh, colorectal cancer. And this is really the first, uh, the first disease entity and the first diagnostic procedure where we're able to have such a robust effect on pre-malignant lesions in order to prevent cancers as opposed to detecting early cancers. Um, so for these two reasons, endoscopy skyrocketed with respect to uh, its uh, utility as a diagnostic test. Now the infrastructure that existed in most jurisdictions, Ontario included in the 1990s, was endoscopy in the in-hospital setting. Uh, not just for the sterilization um, uh, piece that we talked about, but also dedicated trained nurses, the location of the physicians, the facilities that were able to afford the equipment, the building of the infrastructure already existed for similar endoscopic procedures outside of gastrointestinal endoscopy. For these reasons, endoscopy was primarily performed in the hospital. 
And as, as sort of cost-effectiveness in medicine became a more important piece of uh, the puzzle in the 2000s, the, the realization was that um, the hospital for low-risk endoscopy, and I mentioned screening colonoscopy as being a primary uh, use for the technology, the, these are procedures that are primarily done on patients that are not that unwell. They are younger patients relative to the patients that we typically do medical procedures on, um, and they may not necessarily need to be done from a safety aspect in the hospital setting. And as a consequence, if the infrastructure could be created in a less costly fashion, both in terms of building the infrastructure and maintenance of the infrastructure and operations, the hospital may not be the best place in order to, uh, to, to do the majority of endoscopies. And we saw this happen almost in parallel with a, an enterprise-driven model in Ontario, wherein private, and I use the word private in quotes, endoscopy facilities started to be created by um, private enterprise for the purposes of trying to um, deliver these uh, technologies outside of the hospital and to generate revenue, not just on the procedure, but typically linked to other aspects of delivery of uh, medicine. Um, either block fees or tying endoscopies to outside of OHIP procedures such as uh, uh, bariatric surgical, uh, sorry, bariatric endoscopic procedures such as intragalactic balloons or dietary therapies that were outside of our provincial remuneration model that private enterprise could use to, uh, to generate revenue off of. And it actually became a primary source for endoscopies. And if one takes a look at the studies that have been done in Ontario, a very significant proportion of low-risk endoscopies, and in Toronto it may be as high as 40%, are done outside of the hospital at these facilities. There were, at the last time that I had counted, more than 50 inside the greater Toronto area that were delivering endoscopy. And that's a far cry from 10 years ago when this, uh, this, uh, these sort of facilities essentially didn't exist. And I, I was asking you earlier whether uh, you have ever worked in a facility like that, and you said, in fact, every gastroenterologist has to work in a facility like that. It's essentially the, uh, the only way that we're able to provide ambulatory care in a way that we're able to treat a reasonable number of patients simply because of the restrictions and the number of endoscopic procedures that have resulted in the hospitals. And so can you tell me, what, what does one of these uh, private endoscopy clinics uh, look like? How is it different from inpatient endoscopy? So it's, um, it, uh, for all intents and purposes, it looks like um, every other outside of the hospital uh, premises used for procedures. So there's plastic surgery facilities and there's the ophthalmology facilities that are present. And the standards in some ways are very aligned to those. And I'm guessing you, there's not an anesthetist present and that may pose some issues? Actually, it's, uh, it's remarkably the opposite. Because of the fact that uh, most of these uh, centers, as I mentioned, are, are owned by uh, individuals that are trying to generate a profit, volume becomes a very important piece. So most of them bring in an anesthesiologist who is funded typically through the provincial uh, uh, remuneration system in order to administer um, propofol specifically, which allows for a higher turnaround of patients and faster recovery. As a result, more patients can be done during the day. There's actually a remarkable um, alteration of what we think is a typical paradigm in the sense that um, most hospitals for endoscopy, it's the physician that performs the sedation and anesthesia is typically not involved, although um, at, 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 at some centers for complicated procedures, anesthesia is involved, whereas at the outpatient facilities, um, anesthesiologists are typically involved with the administration of, of anesthetics. Okay, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about how these revenue streams affect the kinds of services that are delivered you mentioned that the outpatient facilities are for profit typically, and uh, how does that affect 
you know, where they get their revenue, what kind of services they provide, and how is that related to what we need to do as from a public health perspective, which is provide access to these procedures for our patients? I think um, if, if you told the general public that um, we had this sort of a, uh, a model for endoscopy for low-risk procedures, it almost seems like it's a two-tier type system. You're paying a fee typically uh, for these facilities, um, which is it is indicated as being optional, but uh, may not be sort of uh, overtly mentioned as being optional at the time of registration. You're getting your procedures done at a sort of quicker pace uh, with uh, an anesthesiologist present in a more comfortable procedure, and usually the waiting times are less than in-hospital procedures. Um, Sounds like a pretty good experience, minus the sort of copay element. Sounds like a pretty good experience from a patient point of view. It's probably closer to home. It's But sort of different than what we expected Medicare to be in Ontario, equal access to the same services uh, at a high level sort of for all patients. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's... Um, that's something that um, has been very well noticed by the Ministry of Health in Ontario over the past several years. But the fact still remains that the infrastructure for delivery of endoscopy in the ambulatory environment exists with large numbers of facilities in urban areas in, in our province. So what the Ministry has been trying to do is trying to create a fee for ambulatory endoscopy that's commensurate with the delivery of these services in order to allow them to be used the way that you know, the population of Ontario would have expected them to be used as an ambulatory way in order to obtain low-risk procedures um, in a timely fashion. And so it sounds like there are some really tangible benefits. I mean, there are long waits to get endoscopy in a hospital setting, and so it sounds like this is a potentially really helpful change in terms of both efficiency, cost savings, and access to care. I, th I think it really is the only way in order to administer um, uh, low-risk endoscopy to low-risk patients. And so at the same time, there are some trade-offs. So what are the major caveats do you think that these outpatient uh, facilities need to be mindful of? I, I think the big piece is a step above that. It's governance and regulation. It must be identified that this is a subset of procedures that are being performed at a higher risk than what's done typically in physicians' offices, and there must be some organization that steps up with respect to primarily regulation and information to the public with respect to the operation of the facilities and any potential um, primarily infectious outbreaks that take place. And I think that um, the way that things exist in Ontario right now, trying to determine the best organization to be responsible for that may be a little specious. That's uh, very insightful. Thank you so much. It's something that I think we encounter very frequently in clinical practice, and I never really understood how it worked and the, the differences between inpatient and outpatient facilities. So thank you for shedding light on that. You're welcome. Much like you shed light on colons day in and day out. Um, okay, so... What... <laughs> All right, let's move on to our uh, good stuff segment. I forgot to ask you before. Do you have a good stuff? I have a good stuff. It's not related to gastroenterology, that's, though. That's perfect. Uh, <laughs> so why don't you uh, kick us off and tell us what did you find good and uh, captured your attention from the world of medicine? So uh, this is sort of selfish in that I've been focusing very much on uh, trying to submit my maintenance and certification credits for this year. And, and most uh, most physicians affiliated with the Royal College, this is what January is for in order to get all of your previous year's uh, maintenance and certification information inside. little plug for the rounds table there. You can, this is CME Category 1 credit for internists in the United States and Canada. Excellent. Throw that out there. And... Uh, 
while I was doing this, it was actually my master's student who noticed me doing this and pulled up uh, the latest copy of New England Journal of Medicine that was sitting on my desk, wherein there was a neat editorial upon maintenance and certification and why the current systems for maintenance and certification may not be totally wins for physicians and how there are aspects primarily related to the MOC industry and how MOC is delivered in, it was a U.S. article in, in America, that I don't think as physicians we realize. And it's a neat read. It's in uh, the January 8th, 2015 uh, New England Journal of Medicine. Perfect. Thanks, Simon. That's a great recommendation. So my good stuff recommendation is dedicated to all the mothers out there. So a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America by Foxman and colleagues showed that cold temperatures really do increase the transmission of cold viruses, and specifically rhinovirus. So we've known that these viruses replicate better at cooler temperatures, and these scientists provided some insight into why. So in mice models, they found that airway epithelial cells infected with rhinovirus expressed a much more potent antiviral response at 37 degrees than at 33 degrees. And those two temperatures are the temperature in your core body, so in your lungs, 37 degrees, versus 33 degrees, which is the temperature in your nasal cavity. And the temperature-sensitive response was dependent on a specific signaling protein, which they've called the MAVS protein, and a genetic deficiency in that protein permitted much more virus replication at 37 degrees than at 33 degrees. So interestingly, it's a host response. It's a response of our body, or in this case, mice's bodies, to temperature differences that permits rhinovirus to replicate much more uh, heavily in cold temperatures. So that's a little bit more proof that mom's typically know what they're talking about even when they sound like they're just nagging. Um, thanks very much for uh, joining us today, Samir. It was really a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure entirely, Amol. Thanks it's for inviting me. It's nice for a change to speak with someone who actually knows what they're talking about on the rounds table as opposed to our usual cadre of hosts wherein we are largely just making it up. As well. I, I think you're making a very strict assumption that I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, thanks very much, and I hope we can do this again sometime. My pleasure.